First Peter 1, 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of God. There's a custom that I don't fully understand, and it is the tradition of giving a special last meal to death row inmates. Now, it's not that I don't understand why we would do that. It seems in many ways uh, an appropriate thing, and those who would say, well, why are we spending $50 on an extravagant meal for a condemned criminal? criminal uh, look, we could say in the, in the 21 meals we're not going to serve the following week, we probably are making the costs back, and so the issue is not financial. Uh, my confusion is not that we have the intention of having the practice. My confusion is, uh, how do you enjoy that last meal? I imagine myself being the death row inmate and thinking, I really appreciate the effort, but I'm a bit nervous right now. I don't know how I'm going to enjoy this meal. Maybe that's just me prone to a little bit of anxiety, but uh, I feel like at that exact moment, having a great meal, I don't know what you could serve me that I would enjoy. And so uh, it would make sense to think, well, I'd like to keep myself distracted, maybe have something tangible to do so I'm not thinking about things. Um, I like eating, but eating at that moment. And so I think I can imagine myself, if I were that death row inmate, making a request, saying, hey, look, um, I realize my opinion doesn't matter. If I can make a request, I would like you to not kill me, but I don't think that conversation is on the table. But since you're giving me a choice over the food that I'm eating, if I could be so bold, could I have my last meal maybe a month before the execution? then maybe I could actually enjoy the last meal and that could be helpful. And so I imagined how that scenario would work out for myself. And I'm sitting there showing up for dinner and all of a sudden there's this wonderful meal and thinking, is it a holiday, is it Christmas, what is it? How's the time passing that we have this great food? And looking around and everybody else is eating potatoes and peas. How come I get this great meal? Oh, that's your last meal. And then as soon as you call it the last meal, I would think that you ruined it for me because even though it's a month away, how do you then sit down and eat the meal knowing that it's the last meal? And so I would find myself immediately having the kind of regret to think, you know, 
If I'm going to be nervous anyway, at least if I would have had it right before dying, I could have just, I could overeat, because now, if I eat too much, I'm going to have indigestion, I'm not going to sleep well, and now I miss the opportunity, I might go back and say, hey, I'm sure you can't make me two meals, could you freeze this meal and then reserve it to me at that last moment? I don't know how this works, but for me, the future always has some bearing on the present. You know, what we're supposed to live in the present, um, you know, basically, if you could figure out how to bring the fullness of yourself into a reality, that's when we really thrive, that's when we have a good experience. But our lives have a context. We live in time in a way that we fully don't understand, and so the past comes into our present, the future comes into our present, and the few people who I think really are committed to entirely living in the present do so without an awareness that the future becomes the present and often there's an irresponsibility. I'm just going to do what I feel like doing today without any thought for the future and before you know it, the future is no longer enjoyable. And so the problem of living in the present, everything could be as good as could be. You could be feeling well, uh, maybe you have a day without any deadlines, you've had no negative incidents, but, but the past sometimes creeps in. And one of, the, one of the realities of the past when you live in this world is guilt and shame. Our world is very imperfect, and uh, by the time you get to be somebody who has an awareness of the present, there's always this, these haunting things that come in. And so today, I'm fine. Today, I'm feeling good. Today, I have no worries but today I'm not happy because of this perception that I'm bringing into the present. Or the future, because it's unknown. If you don't know about it, why think about it? But some of us can't help worrying about it. So today, I'm fine. Today, there's nothing I need to worry about. And so maybe uh, our students, it's October. Uh, you don't need to be thinking about your final grades for the semester. Enjoy yourself. But there it is. Today, all I need to do is read this thing, but I'm reading it with the hopes that I'm going to get a sufficient grade. And now all of a sudden, December has come into October, and this otherwise easy day is now a difficult day. Um, there's something about humanity where we are unable to be fully alive in the present. And we feel it. We feel it because we have desires to thrive, to do good, to be at peace. And yet, if we could achieve it in the present... <laughs> Uh, the past comes in and ruins it, or the future comes in and taints it. Um, and so we need help with this. Um, we're looking at First Peter, this New Testament book over the series of, of a number of months, highlighting the theme of spiritual vitality. Because there's a spiritual health that we're supposed to have that sustains us in the present. And it assures a greater future. And yet we don't always experience it. And for any who have been able to muster it up or make it happen by willpower or discipline or just being unusually good, um, this last year and a half has created the dynamics and forces that have made most of us tired enough that few of us are feeling a, a personal vitality. We're, we're feeling maybe anxiety or maybe tiredness or maybe a hopelessness or maybe a numbness. We could, we, each of us may be experiencing things differently. Um, but I suspect most of us don't feel like we're, we could track over the last six to eight months vitality. We're feeling vibrant, alive, energetic, showing up every day in fullness. Now, Christianity doesn't offer a magic bullet that instantly you're happy all the time. 
But Peter does talk about something here that he uses the language of a new birth, being born again. That he says that Christianity isn't just a few methods to bring into your life to make it more bearable or more productive. But there's a very different kind of life, a spiritual life that's transformative. And yes, it needs to grow, it needs to develop, and you have a lot to learn. But it starts a new trajectory where, where you come alive. And so that's the language of verse 3. He has caused us to be born again. Other translations say things like he has uh, given us new birth. But this imagery of, of birth, in the same way that birth happened to us, we were given life, what do we do with it? God gives us new life. It's not simply a second chance. It's more than that. It's a different quality of life. But in giving that to us, um, Peter encourages us to, to, to live that life and have that life growing into a, in us so that there really is a vibrancy. And that's what we're going to look at over the next few months today in talking about this new birth, this idea of a new life that's like being born again. I want to consider three questions. Why do you need it? How do you get it? And then what do you do? So I want to begin, why do you need it? Why do we need a new spiritual life? Why do we need to be reborn? Now, there's a lot that could be said here. I'm going to highlight on or focus on one particular aspect that we see in the passage. And in verse 3, it says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's a starting point. The Christian message is about his death and resurrection but it has implications for our own death and the hope of resurrection. Uh, the being born again is somehow from the dead. And that idea of, of somehow this new life is, is, is a second life, it's more powerful than death, that's really valuable. That's something we need. You know, in living in time, um, our lives are framed for all of us. What's interesting is it's framed with our birth beginnings that we can't remember. It's a weird thing, and maybe it's God's kindness because I don't imagine being born very fun. I've only seen from the, uh, the mother's experience of it uh, with the birth of my three kids. I have, not, I have no memory of my own being born, but assuming the neurology is there for the kids to have some feeling, I can't imagine that that's a pleasant experience. And so you go back to the biblical narrative of, narrative of Adam and Eve at peace and in comfort in the, in the Garden of Eden, and all of a sudden they're cast out and exiled. There's something about every human being's entry into the world from this kind of nice 98.7. There's the slushing around of blood, sounds like the ocean. It feels like you're in Florida, I imagine. And all of a sudden, you know, there's this shaking, this quaking, you're getting squashed out into this cold room, these bright lights. I don't know, being born does not sound like something that I want any memory of, but whether or not I want it, I have no sense of what my origin is. There it is, I was born into the world, I, I didn't choose life, I received it, I don't even remember the first few years. And so there's this, this weird thing in the past and in the future, one of the things that's guaranteed is we're all gonna die. And we understand birth and death in great detail biologically. But it doesn't answer the question about the self, the person. Well, when, when did I begin? <laughs> and, and what are the implications if I cease to be? It creates this weird thing that, that in the present, here we are, 
all of the opportunities, all of the desires, but our lives are framed by this ambiguous beginning that we don't remember and this terribly mysterious end that we're all going to face, but we, we don't really have confidence by observation to know exactly how that works. And then in the present, we have these desires that theologically we say are God-given. God made us good. He's given us a desire for fullness. He's given us a desire to do good things. He's giving us the desire for enjoyment. And so, yes, in the moment, seek and pursue all of those things. But it's hard to sustain when, at the end of the day, if our lives are framed by this sense of of nothingness. I, I once was not, and I came into the world, and I don't know how, and where I'm going, ultimately, I don't understand. How do you sustain vitality? And sometimes it's meant it's just an act of courage in sort of modern secular philosophies. You just be grateful and don't think about the future, don't worry about that, just live fully in the present. One of the reasons we need to press that is because if we give any thought to the past or the future, it takes all of the energy out of the present. And so um, in verse 9, there's this language about obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, 1 Peter, uh, the opening uh, verses that we're looking at, and we're staying in the same section for four weeks. We've, this is the third week. And then we'll start to, to move ahead and, and uh, move a bit more quickly. Great passage, but filled with maybe a bit overused Christian language. And so this idea of being born again, the language of salvation, the language of sin, these kinds of terms that maybe if you grew up... Um, having a negative experience at church or being not from a Christian family but um, being around a Christian culture where people maybe weren't very kind or didn't treat you well. There could be all all this baggage we have about Christian language. And so the, the language of salvation of our souls, you hear that and you could maybe cynically say, oh, this, this sounds like what religious people do. They're escapist, right? Uh, they're just thinking about salvation and sin and all of these things, but I'm going to ignore that so I could live fully in the present. Now, in the Bible, there's an important connection between sin and death. So theologically, they're very much linked. But we tend not to understand sin naturally. So it's one of those terms that sounds judgmental. It's off-putting. Do a theological study and you realize that it's quite insightful, profound, explanatory of our problem. But so maybe the, the concept of salvation from sin is one that you feel immediately off-putting. But when you think of salvation from death, maybe that's a little bit more practical. As you think about the fact that all of us will, will face the reality of our mortality at some point. It's not a religious thing. It's a, it could be anyone who's trying to escape, to not think about that, to, to live without the awareness that that is impending at some point. It's a weird thing being a human being that we have a self-awareness of, a mor- of our mortality without knowing exactly when our last day is. Sort of this strange existence, and so the best thing is to not think about it. But when you start to think about it, all of a sudden the language of salvation becomes helpful because salvation is a word helpful to the helpless. And so while we're striving to be good people, we think, I don't need somebody to save me from my sin. I just need to to try harder to be a good person. But what's the plan in facing death? And that's where we find, if you find you don't have the strength for it, well, why don't collectively we come together as all of humanity and solve this problem? And who knows where technology will lead us in a couple of hundred years, but in our lifetime, 
There's nothing optimistic to say that we have the strength to face death. And therefore, the language of the salvation of our souls is extremely hopeful. It's extremely hopeful because it says there is a you, there is a soul, there's something to you that is enduring. And without that, in an effort not to think about our ambiguous pre-existence that we don't even know where we're from, in the future that we don't really have a sense of where we're going, in our effort to live in the presence, we're not living soul-lived, we're living uh, with the lower capital S, what we describe as spiritual lives. We're into spirituality in some form of trying to have emotional health, of understanding how our neurons fire, of having something ethical. Every human being is interested in, in a life vibrancy. But the Bible talks about a salvation of the soul. This is something different. There's something about who you really are that God is concerned for. And after that new birth, there's a discovery of God and life that's meant to energize, that's meant to give us hope, that reframes things. The problem is, of course, um, without God opening our eyes, we don't see, we don't understand. And so then we're stuck living lives framed by this mysterious beginning and this terrible end. And what we're told is do your best, have your energy, um, but eventually we get worn down. I've been reading a book by a guy named Andrew Root, and he has this interesting perspective on, on the contemporary problem of identity, which is um, the focus, certainly in a place like New York, on authenticity. And where did this focus come from? Well, it was a, a response, understandably so, from this received identity that was not individual. It came from your family, or it came from your nation, or it came from your religion. But there's, there was a sense in which for many pe years, people just received an identity that they just struggled to live out of. And for some, that wasn't satisfying. There was the question, who am I? And so created the search for the authentic self. Now, it's understandable because an institutional identity feels lifeless. But what Root says is that the authentic identity is inherently exhausting. He says that the flip side of authenticity, the shadowy side, is depression. There's an inevitability to being tired out and what, what in reading Root, what he's talking about is especially how a technology is speeding everything up so that we are unable to keep up with staying authentic, with being who we really desire to be and being convinced of who we are. Because isn't that one of the problems with authenticity? is in our desire to be authentic, which is a good desire, this is not being critical of authenticity, or to finding out who you are and really living out of it. It's raising the reality that if that's all that we have is a self-constructed identity, that the danger is that identity needs to be performed in order for it to be authentic. Meaning, in order for you to know who you really are, it's not simply your ideology of who you want to be, but it's as you go out into the world and you act, which means you need an audience. You need people around you, not so much to affirm you, although that's one of the traps. Some of us need an audience because we don't know who we are unless people are giving us feedback, and as long as people are affirming us, applauding us, we feel okay, and the second that they're not, we are nothing. Now, that's a danger that some people face, but look, some of you don't care what people think. But there's a sense, what Root is saying is, even if you don't care what people think, 
for you to know who you are, you have to put on your identity and perform it, that whether or not you're, you're looking to be graded, simply in the constant needing to act, it creates a sense where going out into the world requires a certain energy that we are not now able to keep up with because the world is happening faster than most of us could keep up. So Root describes depression this way. Now, he's not a psychologist. He's not trying to come up with a clinical diagnosis or, or solutions for it. He's, he's describing socially what he sees what's going on. He says, depression is us facing the horizon and realizing we don't have the energy or time to reach it. And I wonder, uh, in this period of COVID, where, where however we've been able to push forward, but now the systems don't work. Um, uh, now uh, the relations have these new barriers, our conversations are masked or they're online. Um, trying to keep up, but, but the same levels of communications, the same amount of people, the same demands are all there. Um, I wonder if we were to say, how do, uh, let's take a survey, how do most of us feel at this point into things? How many of us would, would say tired is one of the top five words? We're just tired. And, and tired is okay. Tired is normal. This has been a hard period, but tired is difficult if you constantly need to be performing and proving your identity. If you need to have an authentic, authenticity that's self-constructed, Root says burnout is depression imposed by the inability to keep pace. And that's why in a competitive society like ours, there are always some who will burn out, always some who will be depressed. But it also explains why after these last 18 intense months, why most of us are feeling like if we have the ability to go on, it's not vibrant, it's not vitality, it's just discipline, it's just hard work, it's just pushing through. Look, there could be some of you where, whether it's a work of grace of God or just some of you uniquely talented that are doing fine, that's good. But more and more of us are realizing uh, that this world is exhausting. There's not this vitality. Uh, and if we don't have the energy to face the work of today, how are we going to face God? How are we going to face death? Um, how are we going to really live life to the fullest? And so there's this dynamic, almost as if uh, there's forces against us that if we're striving for a natural energy that comes from within, we're set up to be exhausted, burnt out, depressed. I tend to bike everywhere if it's not raining, but if I'm meeting you in any of the five boroughs, I will likely arrive on my bike. And if I'm going downtown, uh, the, the, the greenway along the Hudson River is a great way to get downtown. People always say, how do you bike in the winter? The winter, I always think, is easier because it's from May to September when everyone is out that biking is hard. If you have a meeting down in Chinatown, you have to add five or ten minutes to, uh, to deal with traffic. Traffic on what is traffic where, where cars are not allowed. It's the dog owner with a 10 foot leash who's standing, enjoying the water while the dog is over there. And uh, it feels like one of those police traps that you have to go around without getting slung off your bike. And then you have uh, the, the group of walkers, uh, the four or five people in one clear line that are just going out to have a conversation and you have to get your way around it. And then you have the person in the Manhattan apartment that realizes there's not enough room here for yoga, so I'm just going to go down to the water and have this beautiful view and do my downward dog. And here you are trying to bike through all of these things. And all of a sudden, November comes. And my, my attitude is always, this is great. Now I could finally 
get up to speed. But one thing I've discovered about the winter, I don't mind the cold, but it gets windy. And I, to this day, don't know if it actually gets windy because that's just the way the weather works or because it's the only time I'm actually going at a decent pace with my bicycle that then I'm experiencing the forces against me. But I have so many times where I'll be going downtown and the wind is just against me and it's exhausting, but in my optimism, I'd rather have the wind against me now. I'd rather have a headwind and then after my meeting, I could be like one of the uh, delivery guys on the electric bikes. I'll just take my feet off the pedals and allow the wind to, to send me back. And what I keep finding is, after my meeting, when I come back, the wind is still against me. I'm starting to wonder, is this me being paranoid? Is the whole universe always trying to push against me? Am I, am I, is there something about the, the changing of the tides at 1 p.m. that uh, I have to avoid lunch meetings because the wind changes from, from uh, heading north to heading south against me? I've spent too much time trying to figure this one out. I think, I think it's the side wind. I think it's the side wind that normally is not a big deal, but when you're trying to go forward, wind coming from either side, whatever the case is, it's just pushing against you if you're trying to go at a decent pace. And so no matter where I'm going in the winter, once you get the people out of the way, now I could finally go, and now it's, it's not frustrating, it's exhausting. And I think many of us are, are looking to simplify our lives, to think, how do I, things like people. <laughs> it's hard to deal with people. If I could just focus more on my work, if I could focus more on these things, engage people through texting rather than talking, I could get the people out of the way. And then what's happening is now I'm able to move more quickly, I'm able to get more done. And all of a sudden, life seems more exhausting. What is it? Well, don't be paranoid. It's not that, every, uh, or that the world is against you. Um, but there are forces at work in the world. Um, the faster you try to go, the more you're going to feel them against you. And at some point, you're going to realize um, you don't have the strength within you. When Peter says you've been born again to a living hope, when he talks about the salvation of our souls, he's writing to people that are facing real struggles in life and saying, this is not just a pep talk. You really can move forward in a vibrant way but it's not because of your authentic self. It's not that you're going to be who you want to be. It's going to be something that God is going to do in you. Why do you need this? Because if you don't have it, you don't have strength for this world. Uh, Jesus uh, went through death to resurrection. We were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we need something that will help us to come from the dead. That's what this new birth is. It's, it's new life. It's something bigger, something greater. So then the question, how do you get it? And that's what we'll look at next. How do you get this new, vibrant life? Um, and in verse 3, <clears throat> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He causes it. It's something that he does. It's something that we don't earn. It's something that we don't manipulate our way into. It's something that we don't just hope will turn out the best for the end or whatever strategies we have in life when we're dealing with our own limitations and weaknesses that tend to work. On something this big, it doesn't work. What is our hope? It's not that we will do anything. It's that he causes it. And verse 3 gives us what we need to be encouraged. It's according to his great mercy. 
See, when we talk about the mercy of God, maybe it sounds like something that's not essential until you start to fall behind, until you get exhausted, until you experience some expression of that description of depression Andrew Root gives us, which is just the inability to keep up, the desire to not keep going. To then know that the one who has the power to cause things is merciful, that becomes a source of life giving strength. And so the mercy of God in his very character says when you have, have um, lost hope in yourself or the world or the people around you, where do you look for hope? And Peter says you look to hope to the one who can give life. And he gives life because he's merciful, which means if you're falling behind, the world may reject you. But God is not like the world. And so there's a living hope, which is that the one who has the power over death uh, would receive those who don't even have the power to live life. And so verse 3 says it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How do we receive this new life? It's through resurrection. And that's why the, the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus is essential because that's the turning point. That's the transformation. Resurrection marks a new beginning. It's not instantaneous. God doesn't make all things new at once. But he reverses the course of things through what Jesus has done that creates a new trajectory, a new framing, and new possibilities. He does it through resurrection. That's how we get out of this miserable cycle, through resurrection. And so what we find is that we don't know our own origins. When did we really begin? Um, what is our past? What is our history? What's interesting, that the story of Jesus is that he preexisted. It says he was with the Father. He's the Alpha. Um, Jesus was there from the beginning. The Christian story is remarkable because it talks about this eternal Christ being born. So in his being born, he unites himself to humanity in a very powerful but literal way. He takes on a human body from the start. He doesn't just show up appearing as a human so we can see him and understand him. Um, but he goes through the very same process of being born in the painful and miserable way that all of us are born. And he walks through the struggles of life. But what's interesting is there's a vitality in him that's recognized when he reads scripture, when he talks to people, when he teaches, when he heals. There's a constant marveling. Who is this person? When we touch the unclean, we become unclean. When he touches them, they become clean. When we come across the disabled, um, we are left feeling helpless because we can't help them. Jesus is left um, healing them. What is it about the power at work in Jesus? There's a vitality in him that's seen as he walks uh, through this world, having united himself to us, but then going to the kind of death that involves shame, rejection, torture, all of the things we fear most. The eternal Son of God joins himself with humanity to live on this earth as we live, but to die the kind of death that is the worst possible death we imagine. And what we're told, it's through the resurrection of the dead that we have hope, that we have new birth. Because having joined himself to us, we are now joined to him if we believe, if the Spirit unites us to him. And what that means is when he dies, he dies the death we deserve. But when he's raised, he's raised to the life that we long for. And so if he unites with us in death, our hope 
is that we are united with him in life. He comes and takes our sin, guilt, shame, and death, and he comes and he gives us life, blessing, and a future. That is the hinge where we go from being striving people trying to make the most out of life to being people made new through union with Christ, through a working of his spirit. It's something he causes to do. Why? According to his great mercy. It's not that we earned it. It's not that we deserved it. It's not that we had it coming to us. It's that though we didn't earn it and though we don't deserve it, God in his mercy gave it to us. And so... Jonathan Edwards says there's a new foundation laid in the nature of the soul for a new kind of existence. The promise of spiritual birth, of being born anew, it's not just a second chance to try over, but it's a new kind of life that says a foundation is laid because now your story is framed differently. You're no longer somebody who has this unremembered past and a dreadful void of a future where today you're trying to do your best to make the most of it. How could I enjoy today? How could I get the most out of today? How could I not be worried about the past or the future? And how could I just live in the present? It's impossible. The, force, the winds are against us. We keep getting reminded and worn down. Now there's a new framing. What is the start? Well, if it's through the resurrection from the dead, the message is Jesus did this because he loved us. And so what is the start of the life for the Christian? Our identity begins with an act of God's mercy where he loved us. That is the origin story. And where are we going? Well, there's a living hope, imperishable, kept in heaven for you. There's a future that's hopeful. Nothing can touch it because it's, it's broader than this world. And so what we're told is that our lives are now framed by a new reality. See, if the reality is, I don't know where I've been and I don't know where I'm going, but today I'm going to make the most of things, we don't have the strength to make the most of anything. If the new reality is, you have been brought in by love and you will be sustained by grace and God at the end will make good on his promise to raise you up and make you new, then it means in the present, even if you're failing, you have a reason to try again. It's logical for the person who's been born again to keep going and to keep trying and to keep striving and not be worn down by failure. Whereas there's something odd about not having life with God, about still trying to live life to its fullness. It doesn't make sense if this is all there is. What we're told is there's a reality beyond what we see, and it has to do with God and his life-giving grace. He has power over death, and he exercises that power for you. So how do you get it? How do you get this new life? God gives it to you. So here's the last thing. What do you do? You know, on the one hand, when we feel like we're failing, when we feel like there's nothing, when we're dealing with our guilt or our fear, our shame, the message of God's mercy and grace is so wonderful that even if we have trouble believing it's true, it's so good that it helps us. But it's so different from how our world works, then inevitably the question, but, but what am I supposed to do? It seems weird to say God does this thing and you have no control, no power, no agency in it. Now obviously the Christian life is meant to be lived faithfully, to make good decisions. Um, but, but the analogy of the new birth, how many of us chose to be born? We were given this life. And then the question is, what do you do with it? 
And that analogy is helpful because it's something God causes to happen. He gives you this life. Why? We don't have all the answers. But when we start to think, I must have done something or I must do something, we're reminded that the answer is because he's merciful. If you don't have it figured out, be grateful that that's the nature of God who gives you that life. And now it's not what do you do to earn it. It's not how do you keep it. But if I've been given it, what does it look like to live this new life, this new reality, this vibrant life filled with goodness of God who is merciful, who gave me a different kind of life, the salvation of my soul, that now I don't just go on forever as if this world would be without end, but I, I will experience resurrection, the renewal of all things. And so when it says he has caused you to be born again, on the one hand, it's a reminder that the ways of Christ are so different from our own ways that we inevitably find ourselves feeling like I must do something. And, and here's the first thing I want to say is, one, is get comfortable with the message that there's nothing you can do. It takes time because we know instinctively we should be living good lives, we know that there should be a response, but there's something about learning to rest that says stop the striving. The world has shaped you to say you will never be anything unless, and then gives you the criteria. The salvation of your soul works differently. God gives you life because he's merciful. So if you're unable to have that make sense unless you do something, know that part of the tension in you is the dying of the old self, the self that needs to prove yourself, to show others, to earn. And there's something about this new way of life that begins by saying you can cease. (laughs) You don't have to keep up. God gives you life. And that's why you will have strength for the future. It's not that there's nothing to do, but there's nothing you do to earn it. There's nothing you do to keep it. It's grace. It's because God is merciful. So now you find yourself saying, but I don't, I don't know because what criteria do I have to, to know if this is true? Maybe you're somebody who hasn't committed to Christianity and there is something odd about a message to say, here's this wonderful thing, but there's nothing that you can do for it. It sounds so impossible, but consider this. One, why are you at church today? Um, what else is happening in your life? Is it not possible that spiritual birthing is already beginning? The fact that this is of some interest or you have some desire to hear about this or it's provoking you to anger, however you might be hearing it. Is it not because maybe God is doing a work in your life? I don't know, but consider that, that the question is not what will I do to figure out whether or not this unfathomable reality is real. But is there evidence that God is calling me? God is drawing me? And remember, birth, as it happens natural, could be traumatic and painful. Maybe current difficulties are part of what God is using uh, to bring you through to resurrection. I don't know, but that's what you're supposed to be watching for. There's nothing I can do to defeat death and to get a new identity and a second life. But God is gracious and he gives it. Is there any evidence right now that even without figuring things out, even feeling like there's nothing I can do, that God is is calling me nearer. And that's the way that this new birth works. God begins the life that then when we take steps forward, they're in response. It's not that then we meet God's criteria, but but God begins to open our ears and eyes, and so we, we follow with each step he leads us. And so here's the second thing. The first thing is get comfortable resting. That's how we receive his grace, by faith. 
we give up striving. But that doesn't mean that the Christian life is then a passive life where God does this thing and then you, you just enjoy the experience of it. But we go out with a new way of life, a life where you have the energy to keep going, to be truly good. And in this passage, here are the three major categories. These are, this is not all that there is to say about the Christian life, but this would get you a long way. Faith, hope, and love. What do you do? Well, you give thanks, you receive that life, but you trust him, you love him, you hope in him. Those are not simply passive things, but those are ways of living that then lead to fruitful lives, that you have the energy to do the good deed, to work hard, uh, to face the challenging thing. And so, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. That's evidence of the working of his spirit. You come to know God is merciful. I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it, but God showed me kindness and brought me into his kingdom. Jesus joined himself with me in death so I could join with him in life. He loved me. And so wouldn't it be natural that I would love him back? Verse 8 goes on, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Faith. If he did this for you, why would you not trust him? What else are you trusting? What else do you have control of? What else do you understand? We have a person, Jesus Christ. If he went through death to resurrection for us, well, then believe him when he says, follow me here. In verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's bringing us somewhere. It's not that we do nothing. It's that we don't earn anything. It's that we don't strive for anything. He gives us new life, and now there's a new trajectory. We're moving towards this living hope. So that activates the kind of life that Jesus tells us to live. Not that by keeping his commands we stay in God's favor, but by trusting him, by living out of his love, by hoping in what he promises, then we find we are able each day to face the wind and press on and keep going. And so there is a, a time orientation with faith, hope, and love. This is a bit of a simplification. This is for you to think about today, this week, uh, not to develop your whole theology around it. But, but faith has an orientation to the past, and hope has an orientation towards the future, and love tells you what to do in the present. Now, you're doing all three in the present. You trust God today. You hope in God today. You love today. But faith rests it trusts what Christ has done. What is my story? You find yourself saying, I've always been a failure. Why should this work out differently than the, than the previous five times when I tried and put myself out there and failed? Well, you're a new person. <laughs> Why not try? You've been born again to a living hope. So faith says, I don't need to trust in my gifts or my abilities or some weird magical universe. But I look back and say, if Jesus loved me enough to die for me, I'm forgiven. I don't need to be trapped by, by guilt and shame. But I'm going to rest in that. Faith has this backward orientation to say something happened to give me new life. And if I could trust that, that my past is taken care of, I could be present. Hope says there's an inheritance kept in heaven for you, unfading. Un, un, it, it, no one could touch it or take it from you. And so you should have aspirations. But even if you fear that things will go wrong, you have new life. You can fail a lot, but still be in God's good graces, still have hope. And so you don't need to worry about the future if you have hope. Sure, it makes sense that you're worried about the next challenge. You're worried about a particular difficult 
Um, this doesn't make us superhuman. We're still emotional beings. But what do you do with that fear? You'll look far ahead of the next deadline or the next fearful point. And you'll look at that living hope and you say, I could face this challenge knowing that even if it goes as I fear, uh, I believe in a God of resurrection. He'll bring me back up. And so there's that hope that says, in the present, what does God call me to do? Well, he's loved me. He shows me that I should follow Christ who loved. So I'm going to love God and I'm going to love my neighbor. What do you do? That's what you do. Not because that's how you get in the kingdom. Not how, not, not how you keep God approving of you. That's how you live the new life. If the Spirit has come into your heart and mind and renewed you to show you that there is resurrection through Christ who loved us, if you believe that even in a frail and questioning way, new life has begun and it sets a trajectory that says your life is now a life of growth framed in a new way. You have a new past loved by God, Christ who died, a new future raised to new hope and what it means you can be fully in the present. You could bring yourself in love wherever you go. And so John Piper says this. He says, I love the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not because they turn my life into a string of successes, but because they keep me from collapsing under a string of failures. And that's the thing. Christianity is not a pep talk. It's not a fantasy. It says your life will still be challenging because you're you in this world, but you're a new you. <laughs> Uh, reconstituted, raised up by God, given life as a gift of his grace because of his mercy. And therefore, it's not that life won't be hard, but you won't collapse under exhaustion. It doesn't depend on your strength. It doesn't depend on your performance. It depends on the powerful working of God in you. And when Peter writes to us to say, if he's given you that spiritual life, it is a powerful working. And so today, you can love God and you can love your neighbor. Verse 8, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter's writing to a suffering, persecuted church. He talks about the trial that they're about to face. He's not saying that the world has yet changed. He's saying the world, which evidences it desperately needs changed, has lost its power over you. You've been born anew to a greater and bigger reality, filled with joy and glory. And so if you believe it, if you hope in it, then love the God who gave himself for you and love the God who sends you into the world to be like Christ. And it's by his power he will help you to do it. So practice it this week. Trust him, hope in him, and every opportunity to love is an occasion for spiritual fruit, to act according to the spirit of life in you. So do it. And if it's hard, that's okay. If you fail, that's okay. It's according to his great mercy. So do it. Keep doing it. And you'll find as you keep living that life, you grow stronger in it. So don't perform an invented identity. <laughs> Live the new life that Jesus has given you. Let me pray for us. Our Father... We live in a city where we're inclined to come here and to talk about the great things we can do this week or maybe to brag, brag about the great things we've done last week. But we are all frail and deep down inside, all of us have certain things that we hope no one will ever ask us about. We have certain things we hope we will not face this week. Uh, and Lord, 
we should always be aware of our frailty, but in whatever awful thing is going on in our world, it's become easier to see that we are tired. We don't have strength. Lord, we need this new life, and for those who don't have it, grant it to them by a merciful working of your spirit. Do it today. For those of us who have it, but who have been uh, feeling our souls withering and dying, revive us. Help us to see with clarity what you've done, that that would grip our hearts and our minds so that we would go out with an energy each day. And I pray for any this week who is facing something uh, that they fear or something that may be unusually hard, would give them the power, give them the grace, give them the faith to trust you. Would we want success? We pray for it, but we give thanks that if things don't work out as we desire, um, ultimately, the resurrection means that there is no failure for those who have been born again, that our lives will not be uh, destroyed or we are not um, subject to the verdicts of the world around us. Um, but we will have an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. And so, Lord, may that become enough of a reality that we live free of guilt and shame, free of fear, but present daily, that to know that you were with us, that we would live that life as we go back into the world. Uh, do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.